you may take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 will be in uh, verses 17 uh, through chapter 4 verse 1. And if you again would like to use the church Bible, there'll be one there and you can turn to page 981 for that text, 981. <clears throat> um, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, pressing on toward the goal. 1968, the year I was born, the Olympic Games in Mexico City, and the final event of the Olympic Games was the marathon. And in the marathon race, uh, there was a, uh, a runner who was Ethiopian, and he entered into the stadium first, winning the, the marathon. However, an hour behind him was a, a runner by the name of John Stephen Akwari from Tanzania. And Mr. Akwari, as he was running around the 30-kilometer mark, started feeling funny. His head started bobbing. His legs gave way, and he crashed to the ground. And there the officials came in and they're trying to help him. He's, his knees are scraped up really bad and, and it just looks gruesome. And, and they're looking at him and they're saying, look, you need, to, you need to stop. You need to stop right now. And he says, just give me some bandages. Just give me some bandages. So he took some bandages and he wrapped his knees and legs up and then he ran. And he hobbled and he ran and he hobbled. And an hour later he enters into the stadium. And, and by this time, the stadium's almost empty. I mean, there's still some people there, but it's almost empty. And he comes in, and he comes around the, the circle of, of, the, of, the, of the track, and he crosses the finish line. And in all honesty, at that point, he becomes an Olympic hero. I mean, who really remembers who finished first? Really? Bakwari. So reporters came and swarmed around him and everything. And one reporter asked him, you know, why didn't you just give up? You may know this famous quote. It's famous. My country did not send me here to start a race, but to finish. In the forgetting, in the straining, in the pressing on, the race or the walk, as Paul will describe it today in our passage, of the Christian life, this walk of the Christian life is perilous. It's perilous. Enemies abound. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And every one of those enemies is screaming, Stop! Don't go any further. Stop! Paul began chapter 3 by warning the Philippian church of the dogs, uh, the evildoers, those knife-happy circumcisers, the Judaizers. In our passage today, he continues his warnings of peril as we walk the Christian life while the enemies abound. So let's go to our text and let's look at what Paul has to say to us today. Again, chapter 3. Uh, verses 17 through 4, 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Brothers, join in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. 
And their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body in the power that enables even Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Trust in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And we thank you for that. Lord, may your word penetrate our hearts this morning. May we hear it. May we heed its warning. May we indulge in its hope. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are citizens of grace. Our citizenship is not of this world. So thus the scripture calls us to live as citizens of grace. To do that, Paul is going to compel us to see three things this morning. He's going to compel us to see a help for citizens of grace, an enemy of the citizens of grace, and the hope of the citizens of grace. So let's consider, first of all, the help for citizens of grace. We have... uh, to begin with a question. And the reason why we begin with this question this morning is we could misread this text very easily. We could misread this text to be saying, stop being bad. Be good in order to be saved. However, if we've been reading and following along in the letter, Paul is not offering an alternative to the gospel here. It's just a continuation of a thought of the gospel. He is communicating the gospel of being saved by grace through faith as as he has been moving through the verses that we've been working through. And so now he comes to a place where he's saying, so live in this way. Live in the way of grace. Live in the way of the gospel. And so what has Jesus done for us? Um, There's a a point here that I'll, I'll talk about again here in a few minutes. But there's a point here about enemies of the cross. So what did Jesus do on the cross? What did He do for us? Think about it just for a minute. He has defeated the powers of darkness. He has removed the wrath of God that we so richly deserve. He has removed our alienation from God and therefore provided a reconciliation with God. He has accomplished redemption for us, which means that He released us from the curse of the law, the guilt of sin, and the power of sin. In this, He also gave us His righteousness. And He did all this by dying as our substitute. That is the heart of the atonement. Christ accomplished all this by dying in our place. That is by dying instead of us dying. We deserve to die. Yet He took upon sin, our sin upon Himself, and He paid the penalty for that sin. But more than that, He gave us His righteousness. Please understand it. Some people say, like justification, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's only half of it. It's also that He gives us His righteousness. 
So he washes away our sin. He wipes it away. But he also gives us the righteousness of Christ. So Isaiah puts the work of the cross this way. He says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Hear those words. With his wounds, we are healed. Out of costly love, he was broken so that the broken, which is you and I, could be made new. This not only showed God's love, it showed um, the life that is focused on being conformed to his death. So why is he calling for that here in the letter? What's going on? What's in his mind? What is he thinking? Well, we know that He wants them to know this one that died for them. He he wants them to know Christ. But He also wants to protect them. What does He want to protect them from? From the dangers that they face. The perils that they face from. Not only within, but without. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And he is showing his loving concern within by this book in use of brothers. Here in verse 17 and 4.1. So he's like a chief shepherd here. Or like the chief shepherd, I should say. And out of love, he desires to warn them and to protect them and to keep them. They need the Scriptures. He's been teaching them the Scriptures of the, of the Old Testament. He has been applying it to their time with the new, in terms of a new covenant. So he's been teaching them. But more than that, he's been living as an example to them. What does it look like to follow Christ? Sinclair Ferguson notes that the preaching of the gospel can never be isolated from the life of the church. If you think about it this way, they really did not have a a completed New Testament, did they? (laughs) They had the Old Testament. They had uh, this news that this, this God had come to the earth and had given His life as a ransom for sin. They heard about the cross. And so as Paul was preaching to them, he had to lean a lot more into their lives as an example And the other apostles had to be an example. And Paul's uh, workers and helpers along the way were examples of what it meant to live in a truly Christian way. And so that's, that's the help that he offers us. He gives us the life of Paul. He, you know, he gives us the life of other saints in the New Testament. And like I said last week, he gives us all these other saints throughout Christian history to look at as examples. Ultimately, he gives us, before all that, Jesus, who came and lived this life. But you notice that Jesus didn't write any of the New Testament, did he? The apostles did. Say They bring his example to us as we follow them in following Christ. So the question for us in terms of this help is this. Might there still be need of this today? Are there examples that we need to live like Christians in 
today's crazy world? Do our children need examples? Do our grandchildren need examples? Do our neighbors need examples? Might we need examples? I'm telling you, I have read Facebook pages of people I went to Bible college with. And I think, how can you be so far from the things of Christ? See, we need these. We need these examples. We need to understand what it is to have enemies. We need to understand what it is to follow Christ. So as citizens of grace, God has given us help from godly examples, from followers of Christ, again, in the Scriptures and throughout church history. So brothers and sisters in Christ, look to those examples. Learn to be discerning. Learn to be discerning. Um, Even Olivia and I have had several talks over chapel messages at Covenant. What do you think about this, Dad? I'm thankful she's willing to ask me. I'm thankful. Young people, be willing to talk to your parents about the things of Christ. We had a little, uh, when Kristen was gone, we had a little devotion the other night in our house. And um, I told, I was thinking about this passage, so I told them, I said, look guys, ask me anything that comes up. Because I know Olivia does, and Micaiah has. But I wanted Ian and Mia and my other kids to hear that. Talk to me about these things. If I don't know the answer, I'll come and I'll find it. But talk to me about these things. Mia asked me a question. It was incredible. Wow. Thank you for thinking about that. Thank you for listening and and discerning. What does that mean? We have to be examples and look to examples. So be encouraged in the hope that Christ has given you. The second thing that Paul draws our attention to here, the thing that he's using as as he's thinking about this, and he's thinking about the danger, he wants to point out the enemies of the citizens of grace. Look at verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Now I studied this passage. When I first read it, I was like, oh, this is really good. It's broken up this way. And and I think about this and and I'll wrestle with this. And and then all of a sudden it hit me. Who are these enemies of the cross? I mean, think about that just for a minute. Who are these enemies of the cross? Of the cross. And, and Paul says he, he, he's talking about tears. It's interesting because a lot of modern commentators say that Paul is, is having tears about the people because they've walked away from the Lord, it seems here. Other older commentators say he's having tears not about them, but about the church that's having to endure them. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Who are these people? Um, Why are they enemies? What does it mean? Well, as I've just noted, commentators are all over the place. I can't find anyone to agree on who they are. And and typically, there's a lot of different thoughts on who they are. Um, But two major categories that are kind of divided up is they're either the Judaizers that are mentioned in chapter 3, verse 2, those dogs, you know, those knife-happy circumcisers that, that emphasize legalism, and so therefore they undermine the effect of the cross. Or it's antinomians, which means anti-law. 
that they don't want the law. They want to be free. We're free in Christ. We're free. We can do anything we want. It's the opposite extreme of being legalist. And so they throw off everything that, that, that limits their lives, and, and that too undermines the effects of the cross. So which is it? I don't know. Dan may know. I started calling him, and I'm like, well, I, and Dan, brother, I'm sure he has a, a very high educated guess. Maybe. But the issue is, is that so many people disagree. I don't know whether to trust Dan or not. <laughs> I don't know. Just kidding, brother. The exact identity of people that he is describing here is just very hard to pinpoint. But one thing is obvious. There's one thing obvious here. Their teaching did not work out into their lives. And that's what Paul wants us to see. You know, sometimes I think he leaves out things that they would know, but the Spirit directs him to leave things out so that we're not trying to pinpoint different things, so that we grasp on to certain things and not see the bigger picture. So when we look at the bigger picture here, he is saying that their teaching was not working out in their lives. They were saying things that sounded Christian, yet their manner of life was not Christian. Their walk and their talk were in opposition. And so Paul calls them the enemies of the cross. Note that he is painting a discernible contrast between himself and those like him with these people. Paul walks Christ's way. These folks do not. And so what does their way look like? He describes it. Look in verse 19. Look at the short expressions that he uses to describe the nature of their walk. First, the text says that their God is their belly. Or in other words, their sensual appetites rule them and dictate their lives. Passions and pleasures of the world reach godlike status. And indulging in them becomes, in effect, a sad form of idolatry. All human beings struggle at some level with unruly passions and desires. But as long as we Christians struggle and engage in the battle, we still cling to the cross. However, the enemies of the cross begin to indulge in worship of self and its sensate desires. And so if you've ever been like me and you've thought, how in the world could a baptized Christian do that? You could stay there and you can go further and deeper away from the Lord and let the devil whisper in your ear and feel like, I don't even know if I'm saved. Or you can run to the cross and say, Lord, help me here. May my appetites not rule me. May my desires, my sensate desires not rule me. Because that's what's going on with those who are the enemies of the cross. Second, he says that the enemies of the cross glory in their shame. It looks kind of like what Paul was saying in the book of Romans in the first chapter when he speaks of those who, on account of their sinfulness, suppress the truth. And they claim to be wise and they became fools as their senseless minds were darkened. And in this, they move further and further and further away from repentance. And find cause to glory in their shame. Their sense of values are turned upside down. And things which should have been condemned are not only justified, but move into being glorified. It's all good. Don't be so intolerant. 
don't be such a prude. From the talk that goes on in locker rooms and the conquests that are made to the tax evasion swagger to sticking it to the old boss, boasting about that. Whatever the cause may be, whatever the situation may be, they end up glorying in their shame. Look what I've done. I've, I've overcome this. Or I've given in to this. I've done this. I think I've told you guys a story when I was um, a young man. Yeah, I don't know. The Lord really put a bunch of creeps around me. I'm not kidding you. And, you know, I would just hear these stories and half of them were guys that, re- that went to church regular and just talked about, you know, their sexuality outside their marriages and stuff. It was amazing the crazy things that those people did. And then they talk about their own salvation like, that's no big deal. I think that's what he, they're talking about here. Remember in 1 Corinthians where he's talking about, you know, um, you know this immoral brother, this immoral brother who does things that even pagans wouldn't think of doing. Kick him out of the church. I think maybe this is the type of people that he's talking about here. They glory in their shame. Third, they're characterized by having minds set on earthly things. In other words, they have foolish fixations. When the Scriptures speak of the world in terms of an enemy, the world is understood not so much as a physical place in which we live, but it's the whole mindset of the world that it's really talking about. It's this collection of thoughts and priorities and premises and values and goals that are opposed to the Word of God. Uh, The fundamental values and priorities of this world include amassing possessions, um, amassing power and prestige, uh, pleasure, along with goals uh, that that are towards autonomy and and instant gratification. Moitier adds this, he says, their whole attention, their point of view or way of looking at things, their general frame of mind, their customary objects of study, all these are earth-centered. And bounded by the horizons of this world. In other words, they saw what was here and lived for it. I think in our uh, current climate, um, that we can also agree that many views that are espoused like materialism and secularism and, and man-centered authority and utilitarianism and utopianism all have that same idea. We don't need God. We have us and we can figure this out. But finally, where does it head? Where does it go in the text? Well, you got to go back to the front of the verse, which is interesting how Paul leads with this. It's almost as though he's saying, this is what's going to happen. Now let me tell you how they got there. What happens? Look at the text. Their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. Understand it again. I think it's pretty clear that he is pointing to people who claim to love God. I think he is pointing to people who would claim that they're Christians. Yet they're so worldly. That he characterizes them as enemies of the cross whose end is destruction. 
Do you see what he's saying here? They're all wrapped up in this life. They want their praise here. They want their affirmation here. This is where they belong. This is where their reward is. They claim to be believers, but what they want most in life is here. Those who have abandoned the cross, both for themselves and for the paradigm of Christian living, are destined for destruction. Where might you see that today? This is where we have to be discerning, right? Uh, We have to know the purity of the Word of God. Remember, I've, I've said this a lot. I think it's important that we do this. We have to make sure that we're in good teaching. In, in Acts, okay, I'm going to fail my presbytery exam here, either 16 or 17. The Bereans are, 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 are hearing the Word of God from Paul, but they're going back into the Scripture and checking it and saying, are you really teaching this right? Do you really know this? Because you could say all these things about this man that died on the cross, but if it doesn't add up to what we know in the Old Testament, then forget it. But as they listened, they realized it does all add up. So we have to be discerning. And so where might we see these things today? Maybe if you go home and you type in the Christian book distributor retailer's list of the top 100 Christian books, you would see many, many, many that are not the things of God. Uh, Maybe it would be trading biblical-centered worship for gatherings in which the world will accept us and like us and be a part of us. Even though Jesus says the world will hate you, and that never gives us an excuse to be mean or ugly or rude or anything else. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Corinthians, look, that whole section where the Lord's Supper's talked about uh, in Corinthians 11, the issue is, is that's going on there is that they're not following the Lord right there. They're not being inviting to outsiders. There's nothing wrong with being inviting to outsiders. The Lord wants us to do that. But, but that we would change fundamentally worship of the living God? No, he would never call us to that. Again, you know, I tell my kids all the time because they'll go to different churches. Olivia's visited quite a few churches in Chattanooga area, and they're different, and they're different in their styles of worship. There's nothing wrong with having a little bit of a different style of worship, but it better be God centered. I'll never forget coming home after worship one time when I was in South Carolina and I turned on the TV. And I won't mention this pastor's name, but it was in Houston. And a guy's standing there and this motorcycle jumps over his head. And I'm like, what in the world is all that? Oh, it looks good. Everybody loved it. Everybody's a member of that church now. The whole world is. No, they're not. It doesn't work that way. We worship the Lord. And we love our enemies. And we say, come. But we might just see those particular issues there. And what about this? This is a more horrific side that's been in the news in the last week. What about the life of the young man who was the synagogue shooter? 
you do realize that he attended an Orthodox Presbyterian church, a church related to us. His father was an elder in the church. How could he do such things? How could he believe that, that Jewish people need to be killed for killing Christ? How could he get the gospel so wrong? I mean, think about it. Seriously? It was your sin, buddy, that killed him. It wasn't the Jews. Oh, and what about Jesus saying, I give my life, I lay my life down. How can someone be so lost? How could someone be such an enemy to the cross? And maybe here we would see that both are true about Paul's tears. He hurts for the church, but at the same time, he would hurt for that man, that young man, who has been so deceived. Do you see why Paul is saying these things to the church? It's so easy to be deceived. Be warned. Be on guard. Be careful who you imitate. I, I was reading this morning in Proverbs and... and <coughs> <coughs> Please forgive me. Um, I was reading in Proverbs, and one of the Proverbs said, Do not be, be careful about being friends with an angry man because you might pick up his habits. It's giving us a warning. It's all over the place. He, he's given us wisdom there. Be careful who we imitate. We must be discerning. Ferguson says the message here is clear. Follow Christ, the crucified Savior, and those whose lives provide Christ-like examples. Do not set your mind on earthly things like them. Be on your guard against their teaching and influence. Christ is the goal. Christ and Him crucified is the message. Taking up the cross is the way He calls us to live. Follow Him. Be careful, brothers and sisters. Be discerning. Um, parents, be careful and pray over and guard your kids. We live with enemies that abound. But it, Paul doesn't leave us there. Thank God he doesn't leave us there. He calls us again to live unto Christ and to follow Him. And He gives us a glimpse of what that looks like and the hope as citizens of grace. One of the things I find very fascinating is that people question Christianity all the time. And if you ever really pay attention to that, you know, people that would be against Christianity, why are they against Christianity? It's ultimately because they want to be in charge of their lives. It's ultimately that they don't want to have God or anybody else tell them how to live. Uh, they'll be spiritual because they get to direct their spirituality. They get to direct how they live. They want to live in certain ways and have their sins. And they want to live for the here and now. But I'm telling you, you know, if you really think about it, young people, I'm, I'm, I'm standing here and I'll just tell you that life here and now sounds great. 
You know, life here and now sounds great, but it ends quicker than you think. It really does. So as you think about people questioning Christianity, do you ever in, turn, in return question their beliefs? It's one of my favorite evangelistic tactics. I'm like, well, you don't love Christ. Well, tell me about your life. Tell me about what you believe. And then I just point out you know, where they're, they're just all over the place. And I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm trying to get them to see the truth about who He is. Where are you going? What are you doing? The reality is, is that as believers, we're not actually the ones running around aimless. We're not. We're running toward a goal. We're running toward a prize, toward a hope. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body into, or lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Thus, in the Lord, my beloved. Paul is saying, there is an end to the race, and at the end of the race, Jesus will be there cheering us on. Welcoming welcoming us, battered and beat up and hobbling with our knees bandaged, our arms bandaged, our heads bandaged, our hearts bandaged, wounded, with His arms wide open. And it's not like He's not with us all the way. But in the end, when we come to Him, He's going to be there in in His full bodily presence. He awaits us there. And when that day comes, we will be transformed. We will be like Him in His glory. We will be made perfect in all His ways. We will have new bodies for you older saints. Just think about that. You know, I can't wait to have my back fixed. This is the hope for Christians. For we all know, Christians and even non-Christians alike. I mean, it's interesting how um, we always need to be very careful about, you know, judging the world. Paul tells us not to judge the world. I don't think that, I think that means judge and jury. I don't think that means we can't be discerning. We have to judge in a discerning way, obviously, of the world. But I think both Christians and non-Christians alike know that things are not just the way they should be. I mean, all you have to do is listen to the news, right? Things are worse than they've ever been. That's all I've been hearing now since Trump has been elected, and I think it's interesting. Things are worse than they've ever been. The technology that we thought would help us has only led to greater addictions, greater isolation. Greater division. Even the stuff with that kid. You know, here's the thing. I got into this trap of thinking, because I'm, I'm like, you people are crazy. I'm sorry. I just, I do. I think that. You could listen to my wife. I'll say, those people are crazy. But I'll listen to the media, and I'm like, we never had any problems till Trump was elected. And I'm not trying to take up for the man. I'm just saying, think about it just for a minute. We never had any problems. Race relations were perfect. I just think it's crazy. But one of the things I realized is this. Why are all these like white nationalist groups and stuff becoming so strong? 
you might want to blame Al Gore because he invented the internet. I'm just telling you. Because really, that's where it is. People are gathering together like never before online and talking about these things. And it's scary, honestly. Look what happened to that young man. That's where he got involved in it. When we talk about terrorism, it's where people get involved in it. Technology is supposed to save us. Read a couple science fiction, good science fiction novels. I'm not talking about crazy ones, but good science fiction novels on AI. I was talking to a man the other day who works in computers, and I said, what is the most interesting thing coming forward? He says, AI. And I'm like, does that scare you? He goes, oh, yeah. Have you seen the Terminator? (laughs) That's the point. And what about medical advancement? It's great, isn't it? But it still hasn't come close to even bringing us back to even a little bit to the lifespan of the Old Testament saints, has it? We all still die. And more than that, medical advancement cannot fix what's really wrong in our hearts. It can't. But, for the citizens of grace, there will be a day when all will be set right in this world. Now, I can't tell you exactly what that will look like. But I know from reading this passage and reading other scriptures that this will be astonishing. We will be people, the people that we were meant to be in all His glory and fullness and beauty, shining like the stars of the heaven. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in the weight of glory. He says, remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person that you can, uh, that, that you can ever talk to may one day be a creature that if you saw them now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Amazing. Amazing. No more head colds. No more sickness, cancer, heart disease, mental illness. No more abortions. No more death of any kind. There'll be no more sadness, no more shame, no more tears of sorrow. We will have run the race and the prize of gaining Christ fully and completely will be awaiting us. As we run this race together, we run it with the hope and the knowledge of where we're going. That horizon, the vision of that horizon now shapes us. It changes us now. It gives us something to live for, to live out. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Live out of those things. If you're looking at that, live as close as you can to that now. Not that it earns that for you, but that it is the the, the flow of life that comes from that salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. So let me put it this way. There's no such thing as being too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. That's a ridiculous statement. Why? Because if you were to walk in a dark, dingy, old house that was a hundred years old and no one's been in there and they had those thick curtains that were like carpets, you know, and you were to walk in a room and you were to open those curtains, boom, the light would come through. 
And any bit of heaven that you bring into this world, it's like, boom, the light's coming through. What would it be to live like that now? To live as citizens of grace, extending that grace and love and forgiveness and service and trust and sharing and community and proclaiming the grace of Jesus. Let's follow Paul's example, his teaching, his very heart for the prize of knowing Christ in all of its fullness and making Christ known. Forgetting what is behind. Straining forward to what lies ahead. Pressing on toward the goal. Will you heed His word and stand firm in Christ? You are a citizen of heaven. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us live with that. Knowing that behold, He is making all things new. Let's pray.